The following content contains some explicit language that might not be suitable for children or Mormons. It's Tuesday, March 27th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I was watching TV the other day. There was this uh, Stormy Daniels lady on. 22 million of my fellow Americans joined me in watching her on 60 Minutes. Remember the days when we used to bemoan the fact, oh my God, the president slept with a porn star. No one paid attention. Well, now everyone's paying attention. Are we that much better off for it? I mean, Trump is mean and cruel and immoral and dastardly, and his lawyer Michael Cohen seems like a thuggish miscreant of the lowest order. But in terms of risk, actual legal risk, what are we talking about here? Perhaps there was a federal election law violation. That will be a fine. He will pay a penalty. Perhaps this will annoy him to the point where he goes berserk and uh, hoists himself by his own petard. But why is this the scandal that's occupying us? It's not really going to bring him down unless he decides to implode. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's violating the emoluments clause every day. And Jared Kushner, oh my God, Jared Kushner's business got half a billion dollars in loans with firms after he took meetings with those firms in the White House. And his dad, former federal inmate Charles Kushner, met with the Qataris and asked them for a loan. Also, after the election, in a separate meeting, there was a deal for a loan for half a billion dollars from the Qataris. That deal fell through. So what we have was two loans where the Kushner family was going to the Qataris. The Qataris wind up turning them down. And what happens is Jared Kushner then backs a plan for the Saudis and the UAE to stick it to the Qataris, to stick it via a blockade. Look, could just be, on the one hand, you've got a business doing what businesses do. On the other hand, you've got a government policy doing what government policy does, even though Rex Tillerson was against this policy. But what did happen was, hey, can I have some money? No. Hey, can I have some money? No. Cut to, guess what? My son just gave the blessing for an economically crippling trade blockade. Thanks for the no money, guys. That did happen. I don't know how many people noticed, but that all happened. And Stormy Daniels happened. Everyone noticed. Everyone cares. I know why. Because she's a character. And we tell stories around characters. Characters drive our narratives. That's how we understand the world. We could totally see what happened between Donald Trump and Stormy Daniels. Who said what to whom? Who spanked whom with what financial publication? And it does get to the idea of this this White House being a show. And once you establish the structure of a show, once you put out the scaffolding and apparatus, you kind of make any plot point work with the show or even the absence of a plot point. The other day, I was watching The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And let me tell you what happened. One character, Teddy, was waiting to meet up with another character, Dorit. And she was waiting and she was waiting. And Dorit never showed. Teddy was waiting for 40 minutes. And you're not going to believe what happened next. Nothing. Nothing happened next. That was the entire plot of a chunk of this show. We watched one lady waiting for another lady, and that other lady didn't show. And The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills gets big ratings. Because once you establish a show, and once you establish characters, a whole lot of viewers will be invested in those characters. So just like on The Real Housewives, once you have characters who are crazy or who are outsized, sometimes it becomes hard to see that the plot is really pretty thin. On the show today, I spiel about asking immigrants about their status for the census. It's a bad idea unless 
your aim is to purposefully undercount, then it's a good idea. But first, a really interesting book about how things go wrong and why. Ever hear that proverb about for the want of a nail, you know, for the want of a nail, a shoe was lost, for the want of a shoe, a horse was lost, and eventually the kingdom's lost. Well, I think about it, and this book thinks about it like this. Take all the nails on all the riders and have them all fail in a cascade. And what a calamity that would be. In fact, you could call it a meltdown. I am now interviewing Chris Clearfield and Andrash Tilchik, who are the authors of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Could Do About It. Hello, guys. How are you? Hi, we're great. Thanks for having us. The basic premise, we all know we live in a more complex world, but what you're pointing at is not the different areas that are themselves complex, it's the connections between the areas. So the brain's a complex organism, but you're really looking at the synapses as opposed to the fact that there's a medial lobe and a uh, medulla oblongata. You're exactly right. There's a lot more connections. And one of the consequences of those connections is that there are these opportunities for these small failures to kind of spiral out of control and cause these really big issues. An example that I think will will resonate with a lot of us is airlines. There have been so many examples in the past couple of years of airlines that have had just massive delays in their whole fleets. You know, they've had to ground planes. Passengers have kind of piled up in airports. Hundreds of thousands of passengers have been affected by this. And it's not because there's a problem with the planes or the pilots or that the passengers aren't there. The problem is in the airline reservation systems. And those problems come from somebody pulling out a cord incorrectly. And so that's just a great example of this. You have these sort of small failures that just really balloon out of control and have these huge and costly impacts ultimately. Yeah, airlines always get me to thinking because we've all had the experience where we go up to the gate and we ask something like, oh, can you assign my frequent flyer number to my ticket? And they're like, this machine doesn't talk to that machine. Right. Really? I thought it was 2018. In finance, too, we have, in the book, we we write about this company called Knight Capital, which was a really big and well-respected Wall Street trader that Basically, nobody outside of Wall Street had ever heard of until they failed, really. There was kind of a day where they were starting to trade in a new way. And on that day, a tech guy had forgotten to roll out this new version of the software onto one of their eight servers. And all of a sudden, half an hour later, they've lost half a billion dollars. I mean, that's that's a pretty crazy failure. But when you when you trace it back, I mean, that failure can really be traced over – 10 years of, you know, old computer source code in their system that wasn't removed. And it's sort of like this, you know, this kind of like accreting beast that you see that just each layer hides the last. And in fact, our temptation is to add more and more of those layers, even after the system has failed. So one example, I assume you remember last year's mix-up at the Oscars, uh, where they announced right. the wrong film as the as the winner of the Best Picture category. And fundamentally, the only reason why that mix-up could have happened is that there were two sets of envelopes, which was a safety system. We added one more uh, briefcase full of envelopes just in case the other briefcase gets lost or one of the, the envelopes gets lost. But by doing that, we added more complexity to the system, which really set us up for this failure. And it was actually, it was really fun after that happened. I mean, that happened as we were, you know, hard at work on the book. And it was really fun to go back and see all of the like 
writing that PwC had done about their system. And they were so excited about the fact that they had these duplicate envelopes, which turned out to be a part of the undoing. Yeah, yeah. And here's one that's never been tested, but I wonder about the nuclear football. And if you've ever done any research into that, it seems ripe for disaster. And the worst kind of disaster in the history of the world, by the way. Sure. I mean, we don't delve too much into that, honestly, in part because cognitively, I think it's just terrifying to try to think about that every day. <laughs> right. The producer of La La Land's not going to jump in and say, hey, hey, North Korea, <laughs> my mistake. But I think, you know, I think it this ties into a bigger point, which is not even about this White House specifically, but just about kind of politics in general. You know, what we find is that the thing that works well is people openly talking about mistakes and people learning from them and people paying attention to these kind of small signals of failure and then iterating when they happen. And I don't think that most people don't think of our political system as kind of iterative and flexible. It's more like, you know, you throw a hand grenade over the wall and then you kind of see what happens. And then, you know, maybe you go back and you fix it 20 years later. And so I think there is this broader point, which is governing is a very complex process, and yet we don't approach it in that way. One interesting story we came across in the book involved a nurse who almost mixed up the medication of two patients who had very similar last names, who were in the same room and had uh, drugs prescribed with very similar names. And usually our tendency in those cases is just to keep it a secret. But instead, she told her colleagues about it. She told the hospital about it so they could improve, they could fix the system. So they immediately separated the patients. But they also did this other great thing, which was they introduced a policy that people with similar last names would never end up in the same hospital room again. And that's another great example of failing, but failing well. I hope they made an exception for conjoined twins. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> uh, so the car was a genius machine, and for years and years, it was a lot of metal and a motor and a catalytic converter, and it was a car, and it was also a death trap. And then they invented crumple zones, and actually they were resisted. Why would you have a lighter car? That's unsafe. But crumple zones have probably saved more lives than everyone who died in your book. If you if you do the death toll of meltdown versus the uh, life saved of crumple zones, crumple zones have improved things more. And there's more complexity to just driving on the road. Like we used to just pour asphalt and now we have different road materials and road gradients are now taken into account and even the kind of lumens in how we illuminate roads. So it seems to me getting more complex, more complex, more complex. There is the problem of the computer in cars, but in general, isn't that an area where complexity has saved lives in the face of the less complex forebearer? We also had a lot of stupid capabilities to cars, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. we shouldn't be able to to look up stock prices on our car's infotainment system, which I can do in my in my Subaru. And, you know, what does that give us? Well, it doesn't give us a whole hell of a lot, but what does it cost us? Well, it means that these cars have to be connected to the internet, right? And what that does is that connectivity, that opens a whole can of worms. So I think that one of the things we talk about is, in, in the book is, as a solution to this, trying to make this trade-off, us more aware of this trade-off. So if you're a car manufacturer, don't be so excited about connecting your car to the internet. There's a real downside to that, and you need to be thinking through that. And there are, of course, many cases where 
where we really don't want to give up the capability and some of the complexity comes with the capability, most of the book is about is not about changing systems because often we have very good economic reasons, social reasons, all kinds of reasons for having a complex and capable system. A lot of the book is actually about navigating those systems more effectively. One of the most surprising things that we found in the book is the role of diversity. Diversity, when we are in a diverse group, and, and by diversity here, I mean surface-level diversity, so you know, race, gender, but we also mean diversity in professional background. Diversity makes us more skeptical. It kind of acts like a speed bump. And there's study after study that shows that diverse groups find out more information, they push back on each other more, they're more likely to resist groupthink. And, you know, it's it's really interesting. Some of this is lab studies, but some of this is also from the real world. There's a study of community banks that failed during the financial crisis. And one of the most interesting things about that study is that if you have more bankers on your board, you're actually more likely to fail. And that's pretty <laughs> counterintuitive, right? I mean, we think bankers would be good at banking. But, you know, adding professional diversity to that board, that adds kind of noise in the system and it makes people question things and, and it breaks that group thing. So that's an example where no bank can change the system that they're operating in a sense, but changing the way that we think about it and the way that we make decisions, changing our perspective on it can really make a difference. Right. You're talking about real diversity of opinion, which maybe doesn't correlate to when we talk about demographic diversity or, you know, gender diversity, which are good things in their own right. But to get real diversity of opinion, that's what strengthens the system. But actually, gender and, and race do matter. It's, you know, kind of non-homogeneous groups, really regardless of where you are in the world, they're more skeptical. There's a great um, simulation on stock trading that some researchers run. And they find that groups with diversity, diverse groups, are less likely to kind of repeat the mistakes of the other traders. So diversity actually deflates price bubbles in these kind of little toy markets, which is totally fascinating. Right. It turns out yeah. if, you, if you are surrounded by people who look like you, uh, you often assume, or we all often assume, that they have the same perspective, that they have the same information. And if you are surrounded by people who just look different from us, they might not even have the, a different perspective, but they just look different from us. There is this interesting psychological effect whereby we assume that they are thinking about something else, that they might hold some information, and that makes us work harder in a kind of cognitive and social sense. We are more likely to question them, more likely to question their assumptions and work hard to get the facts from them. And we see this Chris mentioned the stock market simulation. We see this in all, all kinds of other contexts. One, one of our favorite examples comes from juries, which are, of course, making a very complex decision, which is also, you know, it's, it's a very kind of unforgiving system. If you make a mistake, it's really hard to recover from it. And what the research shows is that more racially diverse groups, more racially diverse jurors deliberate longer, they ask more questions, they share more information, they consider a wider range of facts, they even make fewer mistakes when they are trying to recall the case facts. It's really that the speed bump effect is really, really powerful. Do they convict fewer innocent people? Well, two things. This is run in an experimental setting. And so what they're looking at is not the outcome, but the the kind of process. But the other thing is, of course, that's an unanswerable question because in criminal justice, the way we determine whether somebody is innocent or not broadly, you know, in the short term is through a jury. So it's, you know, we don't have a lot of good feedback on whether our decisions are good or not. 
Well, you could actually run an experiment where you find the uh, people who have been exonerated through DNA evidence or the Innocence Project totally. or whatever, and then go back and look at the diversification of the jury. Yeah, yeah I, I'd, I'd love I, to co-author a paper. <laughs> I just wanted to say, it's both hopeful and depressing, I think, but you could talk me off this. The hopeful thing is, hey, diversity, it's an argument for, I mean, we know this in, say, genetics, like it's more, you make for a more robust system. But so much of it depends on looking at the person who's different from you and just assuming that there is an otherness about them. It's interesting. The otherness comes also sometimes when people look the same. So they run the same kind of thing with people from different sororities who a priori you would expect to kind of not necessarily have surface level diversity. But that difference leads to this this same effect. So you're saying stock your jury with both tri-delts and kappa kappa and you'll be fine. The criminal justice system will be saved. (laughs) Meltdown is the name of the book. Why Our Systems Fail and What We Could Do About It. The co-authors are Chris Clearfield and Andras Tilchik. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you. This was great. Thanks so much. And now the spiel. The census wants to ask a question of Americans about their legal status as citizens. Well, the census doesn't want to ask a question. The census is a form. It's a process. It's a story of the rich tapestry of this American project. But the census is also a political tool. And in the hands of the Justice Department, run by Jeff Sessions, and now the Commerce Department, whose head Wilbur Ross oversees the count, the census is a way to score a political point. But what is the point? Wilbur Ross says there is no evidence that asking about citizenship will hurt the count. Quote, while it's possible this belief is true, there is no information available to determine the number of people who would in fact not respond due to a citizenship question being added. Wilbur Ross said that. He actually wrote that in a statement defending this policy. But what he actually said a few months ago contradicts this. He was testifying before Congress last year, and he was being questioned by Trey Gowdy of South Carolina. I will play you some of that exchange. I made a note, you said in response to one of my colleagues, that the more questions you ask, the, the, the lower the compliance rate is. And Absolutely. You... Absolutely, says Secretary Ross upon hearing the assertion that the more questions, the less compliance. And yes, says the secretary, when presented with the proposition that the more intrusive, the less likely people are to answer. And yet here he is backing a plan that becomes more intrusive by adding this question. The attorney generals of California and 19 other states say they'll sue. I've got news for some red states. All those states are blue states. You know, if you're Texas, you may want to join that suit too. Because if you undercount immigrants, legal and illegal, Texas is likely to lose a seat in the House of Representatives. And if you're thinking, well, the seat they lose, if you're undercounting immigrants, will probably be a Democratic seat. Uh Uh-uh. What the census does is it counts the number of citizens And then the states draw the lines for representation wherever they want. There is simply no good reason to ask about immigration status. It won't lead to anything except noncompliance. Already when census takers go into immigrant communities that wear signs that say not ICE, not INS, it is a fragile thing to do a census count. And adding immigration status will just make it harder for the census takers, which is to say, will make it harder for you and I to get what is mandated in the Constitution, an accurate count of this country. 
Also, it will cost us more. It will cost every taxpayer more to chase down people who don't want to answer the door when the census taker knocks. So Trey Gowdy, again, a couple months ago in October, speaking to Wilbur Ross, agreed that it is a problem that citizens feel disconnected to their government, that they don't comply with the census, and that this makes the undertaking more expensive and less accurate. Let's listen to what Trey Gowdy said then. Cost matters. Uh, it, it, it matters, period. New paragraph. I think in lots of facets of life, we're willing to pay for quality. If you were somehow able to convince our fellow citizens they'll get an A-plus product, I think it's when you get the higher cost and a substandard product that also actually feeds that disconnect. He is right, and Wilbur Ross agreed with him. If people trust the government, they'll answer more freely, the census will be better, and the citizenry won't feel disconnected from the government. A question about immigration increases suspicion, degrades the quality of the census product, and increases cost. And it doesn't do anything in terms of fair representation. Now, I guess a lot of people didn't know this. I'm just going by reactions I got on Twitter. But a member of Congress represents about 700,000 people. People. Not voters, not citizens. People. All the people who live in his or her district. That is the law. If you're worrying about illegal aliens voting, the census has nothing to do with that. If you're worried that when you go into the voting booths, thousands of people in your congressional district are illegal, well, don't worry about that. Illegal aliens almost never vote. And in fact, let's speak logically. Let's say your congressional district is you and 699,000 people who are here illegally. Well, guess what? Then you would be the only one whose vote counts. In fact, you'd be the only one who could run for Congress. The arguments for census takers to ask about legal status are terrible. They're, they're threadbare. There's the we-used-to-do-it argument. You know, between 1820 and 1950, immigration status was always asked for. True. And for over 100 of those years, there was no such thing as an illegal alien. We had open borders. You didn't admit your country of origin. You just said your country of origin. And today, Stuart Varney on the Fox Business Channel put forth this argument about legal status. Voting is based on citizenship. If the government does not ask, are you a citizen, how do we know who's entitled to vote? How do we know how many legal voters there are? As I said, it doesn't matter for the purposes of apportionment how many legal voters there are. That's the law. It matters how many people are living in states. That's the law. And how do we know who's eligible to vote? In all the ways that we certify eligibility, which isn't the census. In fact... It's illegal for census takers to disclose specific personal information gotten in the census. I'll read you Title 13, not all of it, of the U.S. Code. It is against the law to disclose or publish any private information that identifies an individual or business. Next, the Census Bureau collects information to produce statistics. Personal information cannot be used against respondents by any government agency or court And then Census Bureau employees are sworn to protect confidentiality. People sworn to uphold Title 13 are legally required to maintain the confidentiality of your data. Every person with access to your data is sworn for life to protect your information and understands that the penalties for violating this law are applicable for a lifetime. So the argument that Stuart Varney and others like him are advancing is expressly in violation of federal law, that we need to ask these questions to root out non-voters. 
That is all you need to know about the wisdom and motivation behind asking about immigration status. The census is there to do one thing, and that is to count accurately. And we should count everyone. Yes, even the people with misleading and illegal justifications trying to undermine the census. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who's watching an episode of Big Brother, which included the shocking revelation that that night's three-bean salad actually contained only two beans. Daniel Schrader helped produce the show today. He was watching an episode of The Mole, where The Mole thought he might get that mole on his back checked out, just to be safe. Mary Wilson is the Gist's senior producer. She remembers that shocking episode of Celebrity Biggest Loser where Dustin Diamond was revealed to be not that much of a celebrity, but kind of a loser. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He remembers that stunning episode of the Jersey Shore, which concentrated most on the L of the GTL. A bounce dryer sheet caused complications among the cast. The Gist, along with America's talent, firmly in the belief The team dance squads are the next great Las Vegas act. Oomperu depperu dupperu, and thanks for listening.